Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. Uh, Dennis is not here for the intro because he's in Salt Lake City, so I can do whatever I want. And what I want to do is give a shout out to Juan Posada. He's a new Patreon supporter. If you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to www.patreon.com liturgy, and that would definitely help us out to make more episodes. And also, we have one more month left for an early bird pricing for our Young Adult Liturgy Conference, uh, Transfigured. So at the end of April, that discount ends. So go to betransfigured.com to register for that. And this week is the penultimate Sacrosanctum Concilium episode. We have one more after this week, and then we're finished with the document. So who knows what we'll do after this. So without further ado, episode 26 of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of ultra boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present the Liturgy Guys. Sacrosanctum Concilium, the section on music. That's chapter is six. Is this, uh, I wonder if Dennis is, uh, finds these fighting words. Chapter six on sacred music I begins at one twelve. The musical tradition of the universal church is a treasure of inestimable value, greater even than any other art, especially art and architecture. Oh, shots fired. Uh, we just taught this in class today, and the way I asked the students was, <laughs> read the first sentence, why are there arrows in my heart? And Because you're St. Sebastian. Is it nonetheless true? Oh, I, this is great. I'm going to print that out and put it on your office door in big, bold words. Mm-hmm. And, and you wonder. Well, okay. Anyway, here we go. Why is... Let's, let's make Jesse... Let's put Jesse on the hot seat here. Dang it. Why is the, the value of music greater than any other art? You sat through the music class. You should know this. Yes. Okay. So... Oh, look at me. He says with certain calm. Music is music. one of the best imitations or one ways that we can relate to God because... Word and breath. You have... What? I'm not done yet. Okay. Well. That's what I would have said two years ago. <laughs> what, I, what I was going to say this year is that it's just way better than architecture. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the word here is greater than any other art. This next sentence says the main reason for this is... It forms a necessary or integral part of the solemn liturgy. Why is it integral with the liturgy compared to visual arts? I told you, word and breath. That's Mm. what singing is, but why is it integral to the sacred liturgy? Because it's the way that God communicates with us. Well, you're being smart, but not quite exactly right. That's what every teacher I've ever had (laughs) told me. When you sing the liturgy, you're actually doing the integral work of the prayer, right? Saying the word, the words are being sung, you're actually integrally interwoven with the nature of the liturgy itself. You know, I could have a statue or something. It's not really integral to the liturgy. You could have it without the statue, but singing is, you can't sing the liturgy without actually doing the liturgy, unless you're humming some other tune, right? And so it's woven into the very fabric of the liturgy itself when that art is used. And so it's integral to it. 
Uh, what does it say here? A sacred song united to the words. So that's the key thing, that it's united to the words. Notice it's not some other words, and it's not you know a, a bassoon solo necessarily. Sorry, Alexis Katarna, our favorite bassoonist. <laughs> She's a bassoonist? <laughs> she is, and what a bassoonist. She's very, she, I think she was the only bassoon major I've ever met in my life. But, but sooner uh, or later. Yeah, but she was really good um, nonetheless. But a bassoon is a nice sound. It's a great instrument, but singing... Uh, is it a nice sound though? Doesn't it kind Actually, of sound it is. like a, well, if you know not, how to play, not it, if it's sure played it's right, it's, it's like the angel singing. It's like a fancy bagpipe. Well, kind of without the screech. <laughs> so you know, they, they're talking about music here. Really, really important. And who do they mention by name twice? Chris, Pius, twice Jesse, Pius the Pius the tenth. How come? Because he's awesome and he's a <laughs> BA. <laughs> he's probably a PhD as well, or STD. But nonetheless, he gave that famous document on music called... Trala Salichitudini. Trala Salichitudini. God bless you. In what year? On what day? Oh, 1910? No. 12. No. St. Cecilia. We had this exact <laughs> interchange. 1902. No. Three. 1903. Yes. November 22nd, How 1903. I get that wrong so many times? I don't know, right. but at least you're... On the Feast of St. Cecilia. Yes. This is true. Which is what day? It's a, one of the days in 1903. <laughs> <laughs> and every year after. November yes. 11th? 22nd. 22nd. Dang it. Chris just said it, by the way, but you weren't listening. So I've, okay. I never listen to Chris. Anyway, so Pius X is the great hero of music. He's also the great hero of the liturgical reform that Vatican II thinks it's finally putting into place here. So I think you used to say, Chris, that Pius X was the only person mentioned by name in Sacrosanic Concilium other than the Blessed the Virgin, Virgin Mary. Mary. Yeah. 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 That's kind of amazing, time. right? Yeah. And it was 60 years earlier that he had written all of his stuff. Yeah, what, the Council Fathers voted on Sacrosanctum Concilium on November 22nd, 1963. They did. Oh, that they seems did. totes appropriate. And then it was uh, promulgated on December 4th by Paul that VI. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, they had Pius X clearly in mind. They Wait, said, what's December 4th mean? That's just nothing. It's oh, just the date that he, you, oh, why did no, you that's the it? date that Paul VI solemnly promulgated it yeah, after but, the vote was taken. Yeah, but what does it have to do with any other date? Is it a particular date in the calendar is the question? No. no. It's just, just, no, uh, no, just the practical just necessity of promulgating. To promulgate or not to promulgate. Anyway. That is the question. <laughs> so the point is, what, what they say here is, uh, in the Roman pontiffs in recent times, so Pius XI, Pius XII, led by Pius X, have explained more the ministerial function supplied by sacred music. What's a ministerial function? What's a minister, Chris? Yeah. Jesse. I think this is how I read this. A minister does three principal things. He has the priestly Priest, office. prophet, yep. king. That's the munuros Christi. Munera, yeah. Because mun, munus means office, right? Like municipal. Yeah. And so sacred music ought to be prophetic. It ought to be based on the text and amplify the text and make the text more penetrating. But it's also an offering. Yeah, it has to be priestly. So it's meant to help move hearts to the altar and through the hands of the priest to God the Father. I'm going to get king in there. Uh, because it, the music is at the service of the liturgy oh. rather than the liturgy being kind of a stage or setting for And the king serves his people and would die for them. Exactly. Just like musicians. So that's, I think, uh, what, he mean, why, what they mean by the ministerial uh, uh, function. Now, we have gone to the mat over this next sentence here. Therefore, the music is to be considered the more holy in proportion as it is more closely connected with the liturgical action. What does that mean? Yeah, I've, I've uh, changed my <clears throat> tune, so to speak. Oh, uh, I no, see what you I did think, there. Uh, it used no. to be all are welcome, now it's... Uh, 
<laughs> None are ever present. Basically, what it means is, is when you sing the liturgical texts, they are more holy versus singing texts that are more ancillary and peripheral to yes. liturgical texts. So yes. why are they sing even the options? Why are they even options? Well, well, but even though, even uh, in the... Uh, the various types of liturgical texts, there's different hierarchies of importance of which texts of the liturgy are more important than others. So dialogues, uh, acclamations, and things like that mm -hmm. are more important. I mean, that's, that's what is supposed to be sung. How come? We've talked about this before, but it never hurts to say it again. Why is a dialogue so important? A priest says something and people answer either amen or some other Because we're, we are... We, as the body of Christ, are imitating the Trinitarian dialogue. Yes. Or uh, I think maybe the more uh, uh, the clear image is, is you're you're imitating and sacramentalizing the love song between bride and bridegroom. Yeah, that's what I, I was also going to say. That or the head and the members, which is pretty. I much was the also going to say that. Remember, mystical body theology is really really big at this time because if the head, the priest, is go to the cleric who does all the priestly stuff, and the people sit during the low mass and do something else and just wait for the magic or sing hymns magic of ordination to confect the Eucharist or you know I don't want to say magic in a you know too offhand a way but that's one way to sarcastically say it then what do the people do well I don't know but if they're priestly people then they do according to their place in the mystical body what the priest does as the head and so they offer themselves and their priests prophets and kings as well so anytime the priest sings to them and says Come do what I'm doing. Participate according to your place in the mystical body and what I'm doing. That's way more important than some other song that might be sung at Mass. You're giving me the finger there, Chris. Oh, hey. I mean, the, the pointer <laughs> finger, they, uh, not the middle finger. I think you said the priest, uh, the people do what the priest does. But according to their but place. But according to their place, higher, yeah. yeah. Right, so we don't want to be all... 1970s, um, no, no distinction between priests and people. There's the priests acting in persona Christi Capitis as the head, yep. but it's not just the head, right? It's a head with a body, and the head invites the body to do what the head is doing. And so dialogues are like that. Hey, I'm about to do this. Amen. We consent. Hey, I just confected the Eucharist. Great. You know, there's all these yeses to what the priest is doing. Jesse, if you had to guess what paragraph 112 calls the purpose of sacred music, what do you think that would be? Maybe you could say the telos of sacred music. Oh, it is What's the, yeah. the end, the purpose, the final purpose is to glorify God and sanctify man. Hey, you're yes. you're cheating. Wait, was that right? That is yeah. exactly right. <laughs> like that word for word? Word for word. The two oh ends goodness. of the liturgy. Just like Always. architecture, just like a uh, best, well, just like a chasuble. I just finally like learned everything. something. So if your music offends God and distorts you and makes you a worse person, something is wrong. Same with your architecture, same with your vestments, all of that. Glorify God and sanctify humanity. Man. That's the action of Christ. What does he do? He glorifies I'm, God. All right. Can I, can I get a bell on that? Nice. It's true, though. I mean, how many, um, I don't know. It doesn't, I, I don't think this is an obvious a point as it should be, that the, the ultimate uh, test of whether this piece of music, this song, how it's being sung, the instrument is in the end, Musicians should be asking themselves, is this glorifying God and so, making saints out of the people who so are... So like if we're singing, um, they will know we are Christians by our love, that sounds like it's more glorifying us than it is Well, God. that's a kind of a common knock on uh, uh, a, a lot of uh, post-conciliar hymns. See, and part of the reason why we have kind of poor post-conciliar hymns is the... 
the Catholic tradition is not a hymn tradition except for when these are sung in the Liturgy of the Hours. It's at least on the books, according to the books, to sing scripture. So when we started to bring hymns in, we started to bring mm-hmm. in hymns from the Protestant? They were they were either created uh, uh, ex nihilo in a, in a spirit of uh, in the folk environment, or they were incorporated from uh, other faith traditions. And so huh. oftentimes they, they kind of miss the mark. And often they're devotional. That's the issue, right? So they'll know we are Christians by our love. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a song to ourselves, about ourselves, encouraging us to love people and therefore be known as Christians, right? And so the Christians become credible. There's nothing wrong but with that. But it doesn't that. really glorify God and sanctify man in the way that the liturgical texts do. Not as explicitly and directly. It's a, but that's what devotional things do, right? They start with us and we express what we need and you go to hmm. St. Whoever when you're sick. So liturgical things are a little different. They're both good, but they're not the same. Yeah, at 118, this is skipping ahead a little bit, it says, my translation says, religious singing by the people is to be intelligently fostered so that in devotions and sacred exercises, also during liturgical services, hmm. I would have have struck that line. (laughs) The voices of the faith might ring out. Well, I think if you read it right, it's okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, there there should be, uh, is it okay to like, I don't know, you say uh, glory and praise type music and things like yes. that? The answer yes. Is yes. Yes. Uh, but that's not the same thing as it being suitable for Mass. Not because it doesn't glorify God and sanctify the people, but it's meant to be in private prayer and devotional prayer, perhaps more. Uh, I like to sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, but that's not appropriate when it's someone's birthday. Right, it's not proper to the day, right? And it's also not in the nature of the feast and all that. So liturgical singing has a quality. It's the liturgical text primarily, and it's proper to that day, that week, by the part of the year. I just blew your mind. No, no, no looking it, it up reminded me. It reminded me of something. Uh, it was in a uh, Aiden Nichols. No, no, it was a Teresa of Avila book <laughs> on the contemplative prayer. I think it was this, maybe something else. And it talks about this little girl after she got back from her first Holy Communion, she knelt down in the pew and she was just praying so devoutly. And somebody asked her what she was praying for. She said, well, I prayed for mommy and daddy and Johnny. uh, And then I recited to Jesus the ABCs. And then I I told him a ghost story. (laughs) uh, uh, the, The point of this, though, is that when you return to your pew or when you do your prayer at the bedside or in devotions, you can sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to Jesus. And you can, you can tell him uh, anything and everything or just be in silence. But when you engage with the larger uh, mystical body, there's a certain, uh, there's a necessary type of uh, transcendent formality that uh, uh, is supposed to be there. And that should be reflected in the architecture and the music and the preaching and everything. Because remember, that in many but, ways... But the more so in the music than the architecture. Everything is better in music and more important in music. And in a sense, that's true. You can close your eyes, but you can't close your ears. Although many times I have put my fingers in my ears, subtly at liturgy. I put I've my hands next that. to my head like I'm praying really intently and just casually put my fingers in my ears. So I was off pitch that time. No, it wasn't you. Okay. But unfortunately, the sound is carried through the bones of your skull, so there's no way to avoid the crummy music. What does Sacrosanctum Concilium say about Gregorian chant? It says it should be given... Pride of place. Pride of place or first place. I think the word is principem locus. Man, you're good. Well, we just discussed this in class. The principal location. Princeps is like first, right? So first place or principal place. Or prince. (laughs) Yep. 
So we should purple rain is what we should do. <laughs> so no, this is kind of a, the music formerly known as being oh, in principal no. place. That's yes. not what I was intending, but I like it. Now the I first like place it. is kind of like options. I think in liturgy, you know, you have the first option, section, second option, third option, and you're supposed to use the first option first if you can. And if there's a reason to do the second option, you do the second option, third and fourth. Well, there's a, uh, this line again in my translation is uh, therefore other things being equal. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. What I think it means is that, um, is that in not all places are things equal. So like being in a monastery, for example, is not the same type of environment as being in a rural parish or a mm-hmm. suburban parish. And so the, the, the skill, or on a seminary campus or the liturgical institute, there's different, where you pray mass every single day and you're together praying uh, the divine office, there's a different formation and spirituality and uh, skill set. And so uh, it's not just a across the board, everybody Gregorian chant, but there's, but the number one thing to think about when you're figuring out what pride of place means is what documents had just been put out by Pius XII, not four years earlier, 1958. This document comes out for the Congregation of Rites under Pius XII on the discipline of music. And they go through all the documents of the 20th century. They say, this is what they all said. And they said, it's kind of confusing. So we're going to lay down the rules. This is first option, second option, third option, whatever. Chant is given as always the first place for all the reasons that every pope had said from Pius X through Vatican II. So when they say this first place or pride of place, just read five years earlier in the actual instruction that came Mm -hmm. from Rome about which options are meant to be first. And it gets all the way down to popular religious singing um, and chant is the first one. And then the other ones have, you know, secondary place, which means they're less suitable. So there you go. Pride of place means do it if you can. And if you can't, then you do something else. Who would give their child a snake if he asked for a fish? I'd give your child a snake. (laughs) (laughs) 117. The typical editions of the Gregorian chant books are to be completed. That's so typical, Chris. What does that mean? What's a typical edition? Uh, It means, uh, well... there's Pius X again. There's an official music book for the Mass, just like there's an official book for the Mass. The Mass there's called a the typical Missal. edition of the Missal. There's a, a typical edition for readings. There's a typical edition for music, and this is the uh, uh, Roman gradual. Pius X says, or rather, that uh, uh, it says it's desirable also that an edition be prepared with simpler melodies for use in small churches. And that is called the Graduale Simplex, Simplex. later in 1967. So let's do a little quickie review here. Okay. So before the council, you pretty much had two options at Mass. They were high and low. What was the musical condition of each of those? As far as I understand it, is uh, at uh, a high Mass or a sung Mass, you sang everything. The full Graduale Romanum with all the complicated notes and everything, everything else, right? And then if you didn't do that, what did you do? You sang nothing. Right, at the low mass. At the and low mass. there were Ooh, indults. There's, there's like nothing in the middle there, huh? Nothing. All or nothing. nothing? And there were indults given that people could sing hymns, right, if they, at the low at mass. At low mass, yeah. And this so, too was Pius Twelfth, I think. Right, and there were some earlier ones even than that. So basically, you, you sang nothing, but because they wanted you to do something, they let you sing hymns. The other option is high mass. It was very complicated and took a long time and people were hungry because of the Eucharistic fast. And so the high mass didn't get attended very well, but they were all holding up the idea that the high mass should be the norm. Some even said that uh, when the council opened and all the fathers were there, 
you know, at the opening mass. It was a low mass at St. Peter's and <laughs> to open the Second Vatican Council. That is that's funny. That's purely anecdotal. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's Should what I've read. Should be easy enough to find out. So. Yeah. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> so then what does Vatican II realize is this is a major pastoral problem, right? We, we know that the high mass is most important. We almost never do it or nobody goes. What can we do? So they say, okay, we're going to have the typical editions. That is the perfect editions of all the high mass chant books. However... Also make another book that smaller churches can use so that they can do something other than silence or the high mass. So there's this kind of middle ground. It's called the graduale simplex, which is still in Latin, still based on chant, but is a little bit easier uh, to sing. So what would you call the, the English version, like the Lumen Christi Missal? What, what would that be? That's kind of a simplex simplex in the vernacular, I think. It's still based on the, the proper texts for the intro at the entrance uh, at communion antiphons and offertory as well, um, but in a, in a much simpler way. So the simple gradual was something that came out then. Adam Bartlett's first book there was called the English Simple Gradual, right? The Simple Gradual. In, simple English Propers? Uh, proper, yeah, something like that, yeah. right. But the word simple isn't just like easy. It's like simplex, you know, in the Latin. Easier than the gradual. Complexly simple. As he always used to say, it doesn't mean just add water. Like you have to practice and learn the stuff. And it's got enough complexity to be dignified. So, you know, in 119, they start talking about other parts of the world. So here it sets up a little bit of a question. The Roman gradual is the best. The simplex, as it will come in a few years later, is pretty good. But then all these mission lands don't have a chant tradition or a pipe organ tradition. So what do they do? They don't really answer the question so much, except that it says that you can respect these other musical traditions and genius of these other places, and those can be incorporated into worship. Period. Done. And it's later that they have to figure out what all of that means. In what document, Jesse? Musicum Sacrum. No. Well, no. That does come later, but that's not about mission lands. 1999. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Legitimate variation. Mm -hmm. I should have known that one. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, that was a while ago we did that one. So then it comes up to the pipe organ. It should be held in high esteem. This is in number 120. It is the traditional musical instrument that adds wonderful splendor to the church's ceremonies and lifts up man's mind to God and higher things, which is exactly what it says that sacred art should do in the next chapter. Why the pipe organ, Chris? Why the pipe organ, Jesse? Because it's the instrument that is most closely related to the human voice. Yep, because it's a column of air. Mm-hmm. And the air passes through what, the vocal canal tube. <laughs> I call it the vocal canal. And yeah. then also, it, it you is are a, a doctor. Actually. It's an instrument that has lots of versatility. It can be like these quiet, soft angels mm-hmm. or these booming sounds. Yeah, if you really open up a big pipe organ, the whole building shakes and your chest vibrates. But then it also can have little quiet, little angelic sounds. Isn't there something too about uh, being accompanied by? Wind instruments versus percussive mm-hmm. instruments that uh, yeah you never music bang scientists anything. you don't bang anything against your vocal cords really ever so traditionally banging instruments so drums even pianos are hammers that hit strings anything like that was traditionally not so liturgical although timpani had a little bit of a boom boom sound it so no glockenspiels so occasionally you get some glockenspiels but you know they get further away from imitating the voice and canastas. What are those called? Those I are, thought that was a game. Canasta is a game, yeah. They're uh, castanets. Castanets. You like the Spanish dancers, right? That's what Jesus said, castanets. <laughs> oh, become a fisher of men. There you go. 
But then it says other instruments from our own day can be brought in if they're suitable or can be made suitable for sacred use and the dignity of the temple and contribute to the edification of the faithful. Now that became justification for do anything you want with anything you want without uh, nuanced understanding of the nature of the liturgy itself. But that's not what the council said. No, well, it, it gave this blanket kind of permission, assuming that people, reasonable people with common sense who understood the nature of the liturgy would not do anything ridiculous. <laughs> and assuming that they ridiculous. read Trial Lesson Latitudine. Well, and Pius XI, then Pius Twelfth, and understood what liturgy is about, and the bishops would be, you know, know all these things, and then, you know, now that you, you come to some parishes, they have the electronic drum set for the kids, and, you know, you're just like, okay, boy, you really don't get it, uh, do you? Nope. Nope. <laughs> 121. Yes. What are these qualities proper to genuine sacred music that should be followed in, uh, it says uh, about uh, new compositions, should have the qualities proper to genuine sacred music. Do you remember what those are? Uh, are those all the way back from Trellis Latitudini? I think they are. Aren't universality they? and uh, beauty of form. What it says here is always in conformity with Catholic doctrine, right? doesn't really say what the properties proper to genuine music are here. But wouldn't the, yeah, but wouldn't it be presumed they've already mentioned Pius X uh, mm-hmm. twice? They also spoke of the dignity of the temple, which is the first line of Trial of Selectitudine. So what were those in Trial of Selectitudine, Jesse? Let's merely deflect this to Jesse. Uh, what? Goodness of form, universality, and... Holiness. Gen- and good, and good, oh, har- holiness. And good art, yeah, and true artistic form. No, no, holiness. Holiness. Okay, so it has goodness to be... Goodness of form. Goodness. So holiness it has to be uh, of God, mm-hmm. saying about God, holy things suitable for holy things. It has to be good. It has to meet the the musical criteria. So it's good. It's good sound musically. And third, it has this universal character that no one, upon hearing it, would receive an impression other than good. Yeah. So uh, these I folks, they must have just had Charles Selectitudine like. Next I to think them so. in the bathroom, just like okay, <laughs> we're going to the meeting. Let's, Who doesn't? Let's read this. <laughs> Because it's all the way through. Pius X, Pius X, he was the great hero uh, pope in so many ways. Yeah, well, I think to Pope Benedict's point about this hermeneutic of uh, continuity, uh, you know, to, to, to read this as if it just began, you know, just dropped out of the sky in 1963 is to really, um, I don't know, lose the forest for the trees or whatever, but to, to know all the footnotes and the work of the liturgical movement and the popes and the writings before it, now it starts to make uh, sense it can become more fruitful. Does it make more sense to you, Jesse? Are you feeling fruity? I, uh, I will answer the first one, yes, and the second one, no comment. <laughs> okay, there you go. So music, the voice of the bride to the groom or the voice of the groom to the father, bringing the members of that body with him. And so it has a heavenly character. How would Christ speak? How would angels and saints sing? What would be primary text? What would be secondary? Secondary things. What would be best voice? What would be less best Things that don't imitate the voice. Not that hard. Pride of place. Boy, we have one more, huh? I know. I'm so excited. I'm starting to get a little sad. <laughs> yeah. Chris is excited. It's Dennis just like is when sad. Nash ended or whatever. <laughs> We're right. all in a snow globe. That's St. Elsewhere. That's when that ended. <laughs> Come on, guys. Why am I the one who's referencing that? What's St. Elsewhere? Anyway, one more chapter. All right. My favorite, and despite what Vatican II says, the best of the fine arts, <laughs> art and architecture. Coming up next. Question? Questions, anybody? Questions? Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Yeah. All right. Answers? 
I bet you thought you were going to listen to a Bishop Barron ad not or, or like time. a Scott Hahn ad. Not this time. No, it's a different ad. Have you ever wished, Jesse, that you could take courses with the content of the Liturgy Guys and the Liturgical Institute in the very comfort of your own home? I, I have not, but that's because I work here. But oh, I, I can imagine what it would be like if I did. Well, for those who do, we now have online courses we could call personal enrichment, continuing education on various topics. Four of them are come I'll be up there soon. Two are there right now. Two there now. And by March 19th, there will be three more. So five total. Uh, lots of Dennis and Chris goodness. So you can go to www.liturgy.online. Three with me. Ha ha ha. Only two with Chris. So it's a little competition. Please register and watch. Mostly for, for Dennis's For classes. my classes. We have a big thermometer on the wall and I want Chris to lose. So please go watch Sacramental Aesthetics, right? Study of Beauty in the Liturgy. One's on music documents in the Liturgy. And then the next one will be on active participation and what Vatican II really meant by that term. And Chris, did you want to add anything? Nope. He wants to know where they go to uh, find these online. www.liturgy.online. Excellent. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is? Class, anyone? Hey, we have a question. It's about time. We actually have this question. Is it about time? It is. is What's it about? No time left for It's about kids. Okay. Well, so this is a question that we had from numerous people. So I'm going to surmise the question for said people. And the question basically comes down to, um, what's the deal with children's liturgy of the word. What's the deal with that? So, is it allowed, why, and if so, why is there this ritual where we send our children out during the gospel, and Get sometimes out. they go, sometimes they do like a, uh, you know, an activity where they like color the face of Jesus and come back with popsicle sticks and crafts. What church are you going to? I, I've seen it done. Anyway, that's more or less... What's the deal with children's liturgy? The word is it listed and yeah, Chris, tell us. Yeah, there's a document called the Directory for Masses with Children, mm-hmm. and I think uh, you know we were reading this document once called Sacrosanctum Concilium. I remember and, it well. And, sure and this is uh, this isn't quite a matter of enculturation, but it does talk about adaptations to different groups and peoples mm-hmm. and cultures. Mm-hmm. Well, children are a certain type of group, anyway. So there's a, a directory for masses with children. There's Eucharistic prayers for masses with children. There's a lectionary for masses with children when the group is almost entirely children. So this would not be a Sunday uh, event. But in that document, it does talk about a Sunday liturgy where it's mostly adults, but where there are kids. And this is what it says. Sometimes, if the place itself and the nature of the community permit, it will be appropriate to celebrate the liturgy of the word, including a homily, with the children in a separate but not too distant room. Then, before the Eucharistic liturgy begins, the children are led to the place where the adults have meanwhile celebrated their own liturgy of the word. Mm -hmm. So it's permitted by this uh, directory for the masses with children. But do you think it's a good idea? Well, I suppose do opinions like on it, this, uh, do I like it? I do know that, uh, at least uh, in my own diocese, once upon a time, the bishop, the bishop didn't like it because that um, while there might be some benefits, you know, to, to preach about the Word of God is um, what one of the gifts. It's a grace that, that comes along with the uh, sacramental ordination. And so that was the reason uh, that this particular bishop gave for 
not recommending this or not allowing that because, you know, just to go preach somewhere else isn't just something anybody could do. There's a special grace for preaching. Oh, I never about thought about that. Yeah. Huh. So just yeah. a little mini CCD class is not the same as liturgical preaching. That's right, and neither is you know coloring the face of Jesus and whatnot. Uh, you know, there's a very uh, you know who Aiden Cav- not Aiden um, Nichols, yeah. but Aiden, Aiden Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh. Yes, yeah. he's a different one. He has this funny little book. There's some you know, so, I don't know, some strange things in it. At least uh, 100 jokes about Jesus. Is no, that the book? No. But oh. he has some real uh, funny insights too, and he talks about uh, elements of right. Is that what? We're uh, yeah, elements of right. Yeah. Have you ever read that? Mm, bits of it's it. funny. It's I don't funny. like the architecture part in there. But he t- no, yeah, you wouldn't like that. Um, but he talks about if children are bored at mass, it's probably reasonable that everybody else is bored at mass too. Mm. <laughs> you know, so um, you know, there's uh, ch- children should be able to get a lot out of uh, the mass experience, beso- in other ways besides, say, the homily or their own liturgy of the word. Whatever those benefits might be, there's so many other ways that uh, they participate. And part of liturgical discipline, I think, is learning to sit still and learning to concentrate and listen. Mm-hmm. And so a kid goes I out, have yet to learn that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> sit, sit, sit down. I'm not, and, I'm not even sitting still right now. Oh so uh, the, the idea, you could go out and really uh, you know, do this on a kid's level, which is good, right? In a sense, there's a good intention here. However... Yeah, well, I know that we, for Lent, we've been trying to do this uh, family Lexio Divina, where we'll read the, the gospel passage, you know, on Tuesday and then Wednesday and Thursday. And by the time Sunday comes around, you know, your godson, uh, Lars, yeah. who's six, he knows what the reading is and he listens to the reading. And so there, there's other ways to, uh, to help kids uh, participate in the Mass besides inviting them to listen. But it is licit, it is permitted, yep. they're not violating That's church correct. law. Okay. That is correct. So, all right. So, all you people who asked us that question, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.